You're listening to um, Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and in the studio you've got me, Jacob, and Zane. Yes, good morning. All right. Um, so, um, in terms of what we have lined up for the program today, um, we have an interview with um, Zane. Would be able to tell you a bit more. Um, an activist from involved in something in Newcastle. Yeah, it's uh, Lee Shears, who's involved with um, Hunter Workers, formerly Newcastle Trades Hall Council, and uh, he's helping organise the march in March. Oh, yep. So there's a few cities where that's uh, that's happening again. And um, we also have Chris Jenkins, who is running as a candidate um, for Socialist Alliance in the WA state election. So he'll be here talk. Um, he'll be on the line talking to us about um, the state um, the WA state election. I think it's actually coming up this Saturday, as far as I know, or maybe next Saturday. Mm. But it's coming up very um, soon. Um, and a lot of the polls indicate that. Um, Premier um, Colin Barrett is pretty much done for, and you will, will hopefully will get voted out. <laughs> mm. um, there's a lot. There's um, it's pretty yeah. So it's pretty big. Um, so yeah, when we talk to Chris Jenkins, we'll be able to talk more about that. What are the major political issues happening in um, Western Australia and so on? Um, I guess in terms of um, any big major news stories. There hasn't really been much happening in, well, in Australian politics in terms of, like, there hasn't been, like, a big blunder by a... Well, actually, there's a funny story, actually. Um, there, there, there's been some... There was big... Well, this is positive news. There was big trade union mobilisations on Thursday. Um, we're extracting over thousands of um, workers going... Um, rallying in the city, in major cities, from Brisbane to Melbourne to Sydney... Uh, and um, there was a very, very strong militant kind of atmosphere to it um, with, you know, John Sector kind of like, you know, basically indicating that, you know, these laws, because uh, in, for the context, a lot of these rallies are occurring in response to the ABCC, mm. and John Sector was um, at the Melbourne rally saying that, you know, these bad laws are meant to be broken, um, that, you know, we'll take action when we can, when we can to, you know, to resist these these draconious kind of laws that attack um, workers. Hmm. And now the funny story um, about what happened is on Sydney, um, former Prime Minister John Howard mm. somehow managed <laughs> to be, uh, to somehow stumble upon this workers' rights rally, a workers' right, the, one, of the work, <laughs> no, one of the national workers' rights rallies in Sydney, uh, and he repeatedly... Yeah. And everyone was like, hey, it's John Howard! Yeah. And, yeah, he repeatedly got um, heckled by um, the protesters um, at the, the... I mean, how could you pass up? I mean, John Howard, it's, yeah. it's, it's too perfect. I mean, his history of, you know, attacking workers' rights, from attacking yeah. refugees, from attacking Aboriginal... He's just... Attacking Iraq, like, it's literally a war criminal, participated in an illegal invasion of conquest. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't know, it just seems too perfect... For him to have somehow stumbled upon the rally. It's oh, it's great timing. Yeah, just fantastic timing. And uh, I noticed Malcolm Turnbull didn't pass up an opportunity to describe people booing him <laughs> as uh, thuggish behaviour. Well, I don't know. I can't... Um, I don't think the protest... Um, I think there was this very funny tweet that basically sort of made fun of that by saying, oh, yeah... Those terrible protesters, I don't think they 
uh, illegally invaded a country that, <laughs> that killed thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the crimes of um, John Howard are, are relatively... I don't know, how would I phrase this? Yeah, the crimes of these so-called protesters compared to, yeah, illegally invading... Mm. Invading a country, you know, killing thousands of people. Just a slight uh, magnitude of difference there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, other, in, in terms of other exciting news of struggle, um, there was on the 8th of March, um, listeners on Free South probably would have known because there was a special International Women's Day broadcast in, on Free CR. Um, and so there were actually, there were rallies held in Melbourne, um, I think the rally in Sydney won't be happening until Saturday. But yeah, the rally in Melbourne, having been there myself, was the biggest um, IWD rally in years. Mm. Um, it attracted over 5,000 people. Um, generally, a very exciting vibe. Um, you know, lots of young people. Um, and then great representation from the trade union movement who deserve all the credit for organising um, the rally. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, I think part of the reason for its size is, is um, in the context of the, the whole Trump phenomena um, and, cause in, and also the international kind of context of um, um, on the 8th of March there's been a number of countries who participated of women participating in strike actions mm. of taking a day off work. Um, I think it's t- titled A Day Without Women. Um, so the, in the United States, there was a lot of uh, thousands of women, women sort of taking the day off work. And there's also other countries where that happened or and it coincided with. Um, generally, that was also pre... Um, not the, the It wasn't as big as the sort of big anti-Trump rallies on the inauguration, but still... The, the militancy and this sort of acti- level of activity that's rising in response to Trump is, I think, very encouraging. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's solid. And so th- has that happened yet, that um, day without women? Yes. Well, yeah. it, it happened on the 8th of March, so yeah. it would have been like a day after... Um, it would have been, yeah, a day after our International Women's Day because of the time zone differences. Hmm. So like yesterday, our time. Yeah. Well, um, just to give a bit of more information on it, because um, some of this is printed in the Greenleaf Weekly, only kind of like brief thing. Um, but um, the US strike, um, known as a day without women and organised in solidarity with an international strike, um, you know, saw women across the United States taken to the streets to voice opposition to the anti-woman stance of the Trump administration and in support of, for women's rights um, worldwide. Um, there was also the strike... To, to tell you about the market, I mean, it's not like the biggest strike in the world, but it's still very significant. Um, the strike it was so widespread that multiple schools and um, closed down because of the lack of teachers on the day. Um, in Boston, for example, um, a downtown demonstration protested the gender wage gap in support of working women. In Michigan, um, women um, flooded the Capitol steps to advocate for gun control. In Washington, D.C., House Democratic women staged a walkout and rallying at the Capitol building at 12 p.m. EST. Um, a Stop the Gag demonstration will see women marching um, to the White House demanding an end to the global gag rule. And a Women's Workers Rising um, rally was also planned. This is um, written. This article is written in the in the future tense. So I presume these events have happened. 
mm. as um, as we're now reading them out. Um, but we but um, haven't found any articles going out. Um, but of course, in worldwide, it was it, um, it involved more than fifty countries um, demonstrating against misogyny as part of the international women's strike, demanding you know rights and equal wages. And of course, in Dublin, Ireland, um, there's a big struggle for abortion rights there. And so on that day, um, women fled the streets by the hundreds to protest the country's abortion ban. Um, <clears throat> and in Juarez, Mexico, um, women were painting black crosses on lampposts to raise awareness of states' epidemics of missing and murdered women. Um, and of course, in Kiev, Ukraine, and Tbilisi, Georgia, um, women rallied in enormous numbers against the wage gap and patriarchal laws. So that's sort of a bit of a picture of um, what happened um, on what happened internationally across um, on International Women's Day or the Day Without Women. Hmm. So, um, any other kind of news stories you want to share, Zane? Oh, just to say that um, there's this sort of documentary about the uh, women's movement in the 70s, sort of late sort of 60s, early 70s, that second wave feminist movement. Yep. Uh, she's beautiful when she's angry. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's on Netflix now. So, I saw that a couple of months ago at a venue in Fitzroy or Collingwood somewhere not too far from 3CR studios here but yeah it's it's on Netflix now it's very good everyone should watch it it's very uh exciting and, and inspiring stuff and I'm sure a lot of listeners um would have a Netflix account so it's a good kind of advertisement <laughs> yeah I don't know if it's on other like platforms or whatever but it's definitely I think, um, you can definitely if you search it up on internet, I'm sure there's also other way that you probably potentially bite directly and, and so on. And I do know some there are a number of um, groups. I think um, I'm pretty sure groups such as Annex Infinity were doing a screening of it. Um, so they, you might see more fundraising screenings by other progressive grassroots left wing groups um, in the future. And so stay, stay tuned for any announcements that we make on, say, the activist calendar. Yeah, nice. Um, I guess um, the next quick... Well, we have three minutes into our interview. Oh, let me see. Find a quick news story. Um, actually, there might be something. Is there any, in terms of... Um, Struck, actually struggling a bit to think of. Uh, actually, just to give a bit of an up, um, update, because um, I've been personally involved in um, the No Homeless Ban campaign. Um, basically, I just want to sort of do a call out. Um, for people who have... Um, listeners who are opposed um, these sort of bylaws, um, the Melbourne City Council is going through sort of a consultation period um, where they're accepting submissions. Um, so... The submissions period is actually going to close very quite soon uh, on March 17th, um, where well, I'm, we're encouraging um, any people who oppose these laws to make a submission to the Melbourne City Council. Um, and um, one of the things with this um, submission is um, uh, attendees will be um, people who uh, attend the council meeting, which I don't have the date with me right now, but it will be following this. Um, we'll have to, um, the, we'll describe this, we'll ha potentially have the opportunity, although it's completely random, to describe this um, submission to the council. 
So March 17th, um, so please anyone who is supporting the campaign can go on the Melbourne City Council website um, to make a submission of uh, voicing your opposition to the proposed amendments to Activities Local Law 2009. And of course, there will be, obviously, there will, will be pro there will be a protest organised when the council meeting comes, so it would be great to get that support from that. And there is also a survey that can be filled if you do not want to make a submission. Okay, um, we have um, Zane, you can make the introduction. Yeah, we've got uh, Lee Shears on the line from uh, up in uh, Ellalong, actually, outside of Newcastle. And Lee is involved with uh, Hunter Workers, formerly Newcastle Trade Tour Council, and is also involved in organising the March in, Ma in March in Newcastle. Uh, welcome, Lee. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Uh, so, when's the uh, March in March happening? Uh, the 25th of March. Um, we'll be all getting together at Wheeler Place around 1pm 1, 1 on Saturday 25th of March in Newcastle. Yeah, sweet. Um, and do you know what other cities it's happening in? Uh, I believe it's in Sydney. They're organising in Melbourne, Brisbane... Um, and a number of other regional areas around the country. I think they're looking around at per uh, Hobart and Perth as well. Um, yeah. There's quite a few going again. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's good to see uh, a return of the uh, March in March phenomenon. Yeah, and I think it's been called for. Like um, We started organising, and I think a lot of other regions around the country have started organising, so it's a bit late in the day. But you know, through, as it was organised through Facebook, in 2013-14, it's, it's the same today. So we started getting messages via the Facebook pages. What's going on? We need some. We need to revive what was happening back then because a lot of it's uh, a lot of it's the same. A lot of it's the same as when when everyone was concerned about what Abbott was going to bring, well, you know, his direction and his agenda and the government that he led and what they planned to implement or impose on the Australian people. You know, although we've got a Mr. Fonzie Jacket, Malcolm Turbull leading the coalition, mm. not, a, not a great deal has changed. You know, people uh, remember that he was part of the ministry that that wanted the, you know, that was looking to implement cuts to health and education, and um, you know, was was bagging out the asylum seekers and wanted to stick them in, you know, Guantanamo Bay, Australia's Guantanamo Guantanamo Bay offshore, and um, so everyone remembers those things, and uh, people are angry. Mm. And uh, what's the process been for organising this? Um, yeah, how, how have different groups, different people been able to sort of get involved in making this latest one happen? Well, it's, you know, it's a, I suppose say it's an open forum. It's, uh, you know, as our, as our, I suppose, learning title says, you know, people united for better government. Hmm. Um, I, I, um, I just put it out there. I just put it out there for people to, because there was people, you know, messages come through the Facebook pages, so we just put a notice out. Uh, an organising meeting will be held on X date and next time, and for people who want to come along. And an initial meeting, there's only a handful of us, um, and there only ever well, has been a handful of us here in Newcastle. But they're different people today. Um, we've got a broad we've got from people from the, um, you know, from the union movement, local union movement to to asylum seeker advocacy groups, people are concerned about homelessness and um, housing affordability to, you know, domestic violence and, um, 
uh, the unemployed workers union, the Australian unemployed workers union, concerned about the debt debt crisis and you know the um, you know uh, the job network agencies and what goes on with them and how mm. they treat people. So it's a broad it's a broad church. We've also got people that you know non groups that have you know sent their support and um, and, um, and you know commitment that they'll be there on the day with numbers and their banners and their voices. Quite broad. Yeah, that's excellent. Because I, I found that um, I don't know. It's it's often the story on the left. There can be divisions and, and beef between different groups or whatever. And I found that was because I was involved in the march in March in, in Newcastle a couple of years back. Yeah. And I thought that there was a really kind of inclusive culture there, where different organisations were able to. Uh, people from different political backgrounds were able to get involved and work together. I found that really uh, a really positive part of, of yeah the Newcastle organising group, and I thought the rally was uh, you know quite good for you know for Newcastle, city of half a million people. We had pretty good turnout. Yeah, it was pretty powerful back in 2014, and uh, it was good working with you then. And, um, and I think that's the it's, you you walk on a I think you walk on a fine line sometimes with the with the diversity, but it has worked. Um, you know, there's no no direct leadership. I think that's some of the things people have come on board this time. And who are you? Um, are surprised that there was no central leadership. And I think that's the thing that's worked so well. It's just having it just to understand that other people have a place and have a role in our community. And I think. Um, you know, just with that attitude, everyone works well together. Regardless of what's going on, we've got a common goal and we've got uh, people for better government. Yeah, excellent. And uh, what, was there a uh, mobilisation yesterday as part of this um, National Day of protests against the uh, uh, return of the ABCC and penalty rate cuts? Uh, not, not like in Newcastle, not like... Um not like there was in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, Newcastle, um, Hunter Workers took a different approach and um, sought to build capacity moving into the future um, and uh, start a process of educating workers and getting a discussion going about how how the ABC, the reintroduction or, or the, the revamped uh, introduction of uh, the ABCC was going to affect them and what we need to do locally and in our region um, to mobilise for change into the future. So we had a um, the the, um, the secretary uh, Hunter Workers Daniel Wallace um, just uh, conducted a, an, uh, an information session um, at the Hunter Unions building in Newcastle. Um, yeah, so we just start that discussion. Um, yeah, so we can build capacity into the future. We'll take this stuff on. And, um, bring workers together. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it seems like a bit of a... Because the, there's the penalty rate cuts, so there's the ABCC, and there's the Centrelink robo-debts, and as you mentioned before, these job, net, job network providers work for the dole, this kind of rigmarole that unemployed people have to go through, and all those things are sort of working together to put downward pressure on, on wages. And meanwhile, houses are so expensive, and so there's workers haven't got much spare cash. Workers are in heaps of debt. There's there's no wage rises. It's uh, it's, it's not going to end well. 
Well, it doesn't matter where you look. It doesn't matter where you look. You look in any any little you know, any any part of uh, our society, and the attacks are going. The, the attacks are going. You have a look at the penalty rates cuts. Now, the penalty rate, rate cuts, and you have a look here in New South Wales and, um, um, with the uh, disability workers. This, uh, people work with, uh, in the healthcare system with the assist disability workers, whether it be residential care or aged care. or hmm. um, they, they affect primarily, they affect women-dominated industries. Hmm. So we've got a government. We've got a government that says, you know, power to power to women. Let's let's empower women, and then, then they go and then they go and strip their wages. And then and they're all libs, whether it's state or federal. They're all libs. They're all coalition. They're all they're all got the um, the um, all got the same agenda. And then they <clears throat> then they have a go at young people. You know, they say young people are bludgers. They open up. They open up. You know, they they use um, employment. As a free market, they open it up to to whoever, to the lowest denominator. They give the corporations the the um, the, the opportunity to play one worker off to the other. So young people can't get work. So then they say young people are young people are bludgers. Now we don't want to give young we don't want to help young people. We don't want to help young people. We don't want to give them Centrelink. We don't give them access to to income so they can feed themselves and be independent. Mm. Which puts pressure on parents that are, you know, quite often under the pressure as it is with, you know, housing and, you know, we've got, we've got a society that got um, two two parents have got to go to work to pay the bills. Um, now we're having to go with construction workers. We're trying to separate construction workers, which is the interesting thing about the new revamped ABCC. It's not just a, it just doesn't just affect the guy on the, the guy on the, or the girl on the construction site. It actually affects any any industry, any industry or any any occupation that comes in contact with the construction industry. Mm. So, just as an example, the um, the guy that was doing the fabrication down at the workshop down the, the uh, down the road. That's if they get the work. If the if the work hasn't been offshore, the steel work hasn't been offshore. Mm. Um, so that's a that fabrication shop. There's a good relationship with their workforce. There's a good relationship with the workers' representatives through their unions. They've negotiated an, an advised bargaining agreement. Well, they have to now be code compliant, ABC or 2016 um, code compliant. So they can't actually tender for work. They can't actually tender for work for that construction project unless they've unless they've stripped their relationship with their with their workforce and gone cut them down to the, the lowest possible denominator. So right across the board, workers have been workers and their families have been have been attacked. When you attack workers and their families, you're attacking the you're attacking our community. You're attacking the, our society we live in, and um, it's just it's just it's it's just their agenda. It's just in their DNA. It's just what they do. Hmm. Yeah. No. Well, it's um, it's good to see people fighting back. We had uh, Jed Carney on the line the other week, and yeah, she was sort of saying that. This is, uh, or she kind of agreed that this is the thin end, the thin edge of the wedge of these penalty rate cuts, and that uh, if these aren't stopped now, it's likely to spread to other industries and to the rest of the weekend. And yeah, she she was pretty fired up and foreshadowed uh, sort of like your rights at work round two. Yep. So uh, yes, it's uh, good to see um, March in March is, is back and it's happening. 
up in Newey. And yeah, so how can people get involved if uh, if they're hearing about this for the first time and they want to get involved in the march in Newcastle or, or elsewhere? Well, you follow, you have a look at the, um, get on Facebook and look for, you know, March Australia Newcastle, or, um, um, and just look for March in March or March Australia just generally on Facebook and you'll find the, the number of the pages for all the regions. If you want to get involved in Newcastle, you can send a, an email to March in March, um, Hunter at gmap.com and, uh, We'll let you know what's going on, or you can follow us on our page, and we'll give regular updates to when things are happening. Or you can, we'll see her at, all, at one o'clock at Wheeler Place, um, Wheeler Place, Newcastle, on the 25th of March. Wicked. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Best of luck with uh, getting a good turnout there, and uh, yeah, thanks heaps for talking to us. No worries. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time, Jane. Take Cheers. care, brother. Thank you. you too. Uh, Lee Shears there from. Um, Lee's an activist with Hunter Workers up in Newcastle and is, uh, yeah, as we've mentioned, helping organise the uh, March in March happening up in Newcastle and there's a coalition of different political organisations and groups that are participating in that. Okay, um, listeners, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we just had Lee on the line from um, March and March in Newcastle, um, talking about what's happening, um, what's been organised for March and March in um, in Newcastle. Um, but there it will there will be national rallies all around um, related to March and March. There will be uh, a rally in Melbourne. Um, on Saturday the 25th of March, um, for the March and March, and they'll be at 1pm at the State Library. Um, from talk, um, from my conversation with um, one of the organised rally, there'll be a la- large number of speakers, um, hopefully, and um, we're hoping we can get um, the same large turnout we received um, last year, which um, the last March and March rally attracted over 10,000 people. Alright, so, um, I'm gonna go, we're gonna go into some news, um, from Green Left Weekly. Um, in the latest copy of Green Left Weekly, um, there's this, we have an article here, um, about, um, where, you know, written by Zeb, Zebedee Parks, um, about, you know, US students reject Trump's racism. Um, organized university sanctuaries. Um, you know, this article talks about, um, you know, how, in response to Donald Trump's racism um, and his anti-immigration policies and his sort of threats to deport immigrants um, out of um, out of the country to Mexico, or um, there's been there's been a very sort of continued kind of ongoing resistance to this. And one of them one of the avenues by which people are resisting um, in the United States is through organising um, is through getting the universities involved in becoming sanctuaries, basically becoming places where immigrants or um, undocumented uh, migrants in the United States can be protected and feel welcome and made welcome and basically have a place of sanctuary. Um, And so Zebedee writes here that, you know, this year marks 25 years of resistance to the escalating human rights abuses of Australia's mandatory detention laws. Um, a whole generation has now lived under this policy and are constantly exploring new and expiring ways of rejecting it. Um, and, you know, he then states, you know, one area that has not been explored 
what he believes um, offers a lot of potential is campaign for university campuses to become organising spaces for, say, refugee rights um, campaigns or welcome zones and sanctuaries. Um, of course, um, he goes and states here that in history, you know, we can draw inspiration from Australia's refugee rights movement history. Um, there were refugee rights activists, including members of resistance, um, which ran campaigns in 2002 to make campuses centres of refugee solid um, centres of refugee solidarity, sanctuary, and aid. Um, what has this led to? You know, led to student referend uh, rallies and open meetings of hundreds of students passing revolution resolutions demanding their universities become refugee safe havens. And again, he makes then reference um, to what's what I mentioned before as in as part of the resistance in universe, US US um, US university campuses. Um, with Donald Trump's tax on immigration. Um, writes here that um, there have been students at more than 100 universities across the university have started petitions and are holding regular protests demanding their campuses become sanctuaries. Um, in the case of the United States, there's been campuses such as, in the United, um, such as Portland State University and Reed College declaring themselves sanctuaries. Um, the campaigns... <laughs> Um, the campaign has actually, interestingly enough, though it's not a surprise, gained momentum to the point where that Republican senators and governors are proposing bills to stop federal funding to colleges that declare themselves sanctuary campuses. Mm. Um, their debates, there are quite, quite a number of debates, though, about you know what a sanctuary campus means in practice and you know whether it is legal. Um, at its most basic level, it means not allowing immigration a agents onto campuses and withholding people's citizenship and immigration details from authorities um, unless you know they can present a court order. Um, they can also come in the form of financial, legal and emotional support to undocumented students. Um, activists are campaigning to take this a step further, example being more than 600 students and 60 organisations at the new school in New York City signed an open letter to the university president pushing, putting forward a series of concrete steps to implement the sanctuary concept. Um, this includes you know, training staff and how to recruit, refuse requests by the immigration agents for details and students, re-evaluating protocols for referring incidents to the police as sometimes minor offences can lead to deportations, providing financial support and accommodation to non-citizen international students, um, without, and providing access to health care and legal aid to um, students who cannot access it due to their immigration status. Now, so, um, you know, well is playing this obviously supportive role. It is also playing a crucial political role, is reasserting the old adage that bad laws need to be broken and making a political statement of refusal to cooperate with Trump's immigration system. And then Zeb, now basically in the end of this article for Green the Quickly, um, Zeb asked the question, you know, what could a refugee university, sanctuary university look like in Australia today? It could take on the role of a sanctuary as in the US. Um, there are many people in the Australian community, including those in temporary protection visas, who do not have full citizen rights and risk deportation. Um, let, um, the state campaign last year highlighted this as people around the country pledged to resist deportations from Manus Island Nauru detention centres. Universities could offer free education to refugees. Um, universities could divest from companies such as Transfield and 
Wilson that are profiting from the detention system. Law departments could offer free legal aid to refugees and asylum seekers. Campuses could hold regular events to share the voices of refugees to a broader audience, including speeches, meals, film screens, art exhibitions and more. Um, university campuses are also a great space to promote refugee rights and raise awareness. Um, in implementing this, um, you know, universities would be sending a clear statement to the government of non-compliance and opposition to Australia's cool, um, de- um, cool detention system. Hmm. Yep. So that's an article there by um, Zebedee Parks on you know, the concept of refugee sanctuaries. Yeah, and you remember probably about... When I've been about six weeks ago, there was the uh, protests at UC Berkeley uh, in in the US against Milo Yiannopoulos from um, prominent. Oh, that's how you pronounce his name. Y- yeah, I think so. It's, I think it's Milo. Uh, sounds like a, a Greek um, name. Um, yeah, so he's since been disgraced over comments that he's made where he um, supports pedophilia. Um, but back then, when he was, you know, one of the famous faces of the so-called alt-right, uh, he he was about to speak at UC Berkeley, and the topic of that speech was part of a there's like a US think tank similar to like the Institute of Public Affairs that we've got here, and they were launching a campaign against the campus sanctuary movement. Mm. And Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, his modus operandi in public speeches is to name and shame people and to put people's photos up on the screen and say, oh, look, here's a photo of an undocumented migrant from your university. You should form a lynch mob. And he doesn't overtly say that, but in in as many words, kind of says, oh, you should hunt this person down. Well, he, I think he, um, he tries to sort of use that language with... Um, he alludes to it. Not particularly. that's just a semantic point. He's still basically promoting that, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, there, he's no. There's no. There's nothing about free for freedom of speech there. It's just a, absolute hmm. hate. It's speech. like let's have a witch hunt against, um, you know, undocumented migrants. So he would. I don't know how he does it, but he would find photos of people and then beam them up on the screen to well, this room of the good news fame. is, um, as as mentioned right, before, like weeks ago, he's. No longer, he lost his book deal, so fortunately he won't be able to, um, he doesn't have his large platform anymore to spread his helpful yes. views. and the protest there shut that down and yeah. stopped that from happening. Um, so there was some controversy at the time, but I think that generally yeah. it was... The pro- I think I, I, you know, I fully support the protests that happened there. Mm. And, I mean, people always sort of like want to go on about, oh, there was this one... Person, one, some one antifa, this one person who might have caused more violence than the others. But you know, the violence is coming from people like Milo's, who are the one who are, who are want who want to um who want to um promote hatred and division and mm. um, lynching of of um um immigrants. Mm. And you know, they absolutely hate women. I mean, she. I mean, he. I mean, he harasses women on Twitter. Um, online to make them to the point where they feel unsafe, hmm. um, and he um, there's this term called doxing, which he which means he releases personal details of you know trans women, um, women of colour uh, online um, to the you know for the public to see as a way you know just a way to as a, um, of attacking them of you know putting, making them feel unsafe. 
that is of, that is at more that is there's just it's dangerous hmm. and yeah he should be someone like him should be protested against at any turn hmm. and we and he shouldn't ha- be given a right to have a platform at all <laughs> hmm. All right, um, so we're on Green Left Weekly Radio um, on 8.55am on FreeCR with um, Jacob and Zhang. Um, Hello. I guess um, just one thing I think we kind of forgot to do. Um, I'd like to kind of acknowledge um, that Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from FreeCR students in Smith Street, Collingwood, um, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. Um, sovereignty never, was never ceded, and as with many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. Yeah. All right, so, um, Zane, you have a news story you wanted to talk about from Green the Freakly? Yes. Uh, so, I've got this story, the case for renationalising Australia's electricity grid. Uh, this is an article by John Quiggan, which I think first appeared in the conversation. Yeah. Um, just reprinted in Greenleaf Weekly. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a it's a good article, and it's saying the public debate over the problems of electricity supply displays a curious disconnect. On the one hand, there is virtually universal agreement that the system's in crisis. After 25 years, the promised outcomes of reform, cheaper and more reliable electricity, competitive markets, and rational investment decisions are further away than ever. On the other hand, proposals to change the situation range from marginal tweaks to politically motivated mischief-making. The preliminary report of the independent review into the future security of the national electricity market released last year canvasses such options as the introduction of capacity markets for reserve power, which have done little to resolve problems overseas. So, yeah, the article goes on to look at how... Uh, maybe there would be an argument for the marketisation of the electricity grid if it had worked well in the past. However, in reality, it never produced lower prices or more reliable power for households than had been the case beforehand when it was all publicly owned. Um, in the early years, reductions in maintenance spending conceals this failure, but uh, you know the, the times have changed and... The, the lack of investment in uh, maintenance and upkeep is now sort of showing it's rearing its head. And, uh, yeah, there's a good quote here. Electricity networks are considered to be natural monopolies, unlike other industries where it makes sense for lots of businesses to compete and drive costs lower. Um, that's debatable, but obviously John Quiggins taking that as a given here. Uh, unlike other industries where competition can lower costs, the cost and importance of supplying electricity means that it makes sense for one business to control the market. Given this status, this authority should not be a privatised firm or even a corporatised government enterprise. Instead, it should be a statutory authority with a primary mission of delivering energy security at low cost. So... Yeah, get along there. Uh, it's um, and yeah, looking at the the uh, the question of the so-called unscrambling of the egg. How do we renationalise the electricity system? Uh, I would say with a combination of people power and uh, legislation. Um, so yes, that's that's a good one to look at. And and yeah, 
John Quiggins kind of saying this is this issue is coming to a head and uh, re nationalising the grid is uh, going to be increasingly an option that 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 progressives and lefties should be putting forward to say look there's all these problems that are happening with the electricity system we need transformation we're moving to renewables we need grid upgrades as part of that and uh, yeah re renationalizing the grid presents a solution to a whole bunch of issues and i've got another article here venezuelan cuban mission to save eyesight helps three and a half million mission miracle has saved the sight of more than three and a half million patients around the world Preventable blindness has declined significantly in Latin America and the Caribbean through the Mission Miracle program initiated by Cuba and Venezuela in 2004. The project was created by former Cuban President Fidel Castro and backed by former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Under the program, Venezuela flies those needing eye surgery to Cuba where they're operated on for free. According to the World Health Organization, this social program is aimed at providing sight-saving surgery free of charge for people with few economic resources suffering from blindness or correctable visual deficiency. Official figures note that by July last year, the Mission Miracle had helped 3.5 million patients around the world, mostly in Latin America. The social mission provides consultation and general pediatric ophthalmology, neuro-ophthalmology, as well as low vision and retina treatment. About 90% of the beneficiaries are Venezuelan, while the other 10% come from Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, Ecuador, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, Nicaragua, Paraguay, Peru, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and Uruguay. Uh, so very impressive and sometimes when there's debates about Cuba people say oh well public health care anyone can do that they've got that in France and Canada and they're not socialists well the difference is Cuba is an embargoed poor country it is not a rich and imperialist country that benefits from um, being at the top of the economic food chain and, and gaining from the um, you know, from the leverage, the economic leverage that he has over other countries, mm. well, he has economic leverage over it. <laughs> so. Well, the the well the, the in the um, people like to talk about kind of like um, the Scandinavian countries, like um, I think Sweden would be one of them. Uh, what are some of the uh, what was some of the, the Scandinavian countries again? What are the lists again? Sweden, Norway, Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark, Denmark, Finland, Finland. Um, so yeah, in those countries, the, the case of some of those countries, um, yeah, they have like a lot of, um, they have, they do have like a public health care system. Um, and of course they have a lot of, you know, government social services as well. Um, but the reality is they still kind of like, you know, they still have very liberal economic trade laws. So, you know, they still depend a lot on fit, um, free trade. Um, to, you know, which basically means that they're still, you know, living off the back of, you know, a lot of third world exporting, you know, third world countries, you know, making, taking advantage of that kind of boom in, in free trade. Um, and of course, Cuba is a country that doesn't have that because they have, they do have a, a socialist government. 
um, and they're not and they're not like a, an imperialist capitalist country. Hmm. Obviously, for they're obviously. embargoed. Yeah, so they're quite embargoed. quite the opposite. Very difficult yeah. situation. Um, to go, actually, I wanted to give a bit of a news story actually here. Um, no, you know we've covered um, we've covered um, this country before, um, but and this is in Ecuador right now. Um, the Ecuador is um, actually going to us um, to presidential elections, um, with the second round happening on April the second. Um, but um, in this article, um, it states that a thousand two hundred social movements back Moreno, who is um, the left wing cat, who is going to be. Who's in the same party as the current um, the current president, which is who is um, his name is um, what was his name again? Forgot. Uh, I should know his name. Oh yeah, Rafael Correa. Um, so basically, yeah, um, the the, um, the 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 coordination of social movements, communities, and nationalities, which is made up of of thousand two hundred groups nationwide, will support um, Lenin Moreno. Um, um, who, you know, Moreno states here that Moreno just fell short of the 40% and 10 point leader needed for an outright win in the first round on February 19th, winning 39.36% of the vote of more than 13 million voters. Right wing back banker Guillermo Lasso came in second place with 28.09%. Boo! Moreno is the candidate of the ruling party Alas Pass, um, party of the outgoing president Rafael Correa. Over Correa's ten years in office, um, you know there's been increased social spending, which has almost halved extreme poverty rates, according to the recent report by the Centre for Economic and Poverty Research. Um, by supporting Lenin Moreno George Glass ticket for the election, each group within the national umbrella social movement coordination will work in the area to develop proposals and projects for the next government. Um, they also aim to highlight the social and economic issues achievements under Coro and campaign for a continuation of the government's social policies. Rodrigo Colas, president of the coordination, told El Telegrafo that every region will have a socialisation program to event, present their pro- proposals. Um, Colas added the project also plans for each group to form a permanent assembly to be alert and willing to defend democracy and peace in Ecuador amid threats by the right-wing opposition to destabilise the country. If Lasso and his running mate Andros Perez lose the second round, Two um, different political, social and ideological projects are confronting one another, colonial set of the political situation in the South American nation. The one of good living for all, led by the people and expressed by the candidacy of Morales. The other with lies and violence and looting expressed in Lasso Plaz. Um, so yeah, we'll get in for some interesting times in um, Latin American politics because um, right now there's this sort of constant struggle. We don't know what's going to happen, especially in countries like Venezuela, um, where, you know, you have destabilisation by the right-wing government. You have the rise of the right in Argentina. Um, and then there's been the death of Fidel Castro in Cuba. You know what the, well, the, actually, probably won't have as great implications as many would think because um, Fidel Castro actually took a step back years from, ago. Mm. from Cuba years ago. Um, but yeah, in Ecuador, um, Ecuador and Bolivia are definitely countries to watch in terms of um, whether the left can maintain their lead, um, especially in the case of Bolivia. Um, Elvo Morales, um, uh, a referendum was put um, to the people on whether he were, was able to run for another term presently, and unfortunately failed, so he won't be able to run for... And, but hopefully they'll have another candidate in his place. But I guess the, the main kind of issue was... Um, people um, people weren't sure whether they would be able to win under, uh, 
under new pre- under new under a new leader and they wanted his leadership. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge for uh, left wing organisations, but uh, ultimately you can't be reliant on uh, sort of one charismatic leader. Yep. That was a that was an issue here in Australia too for the Builders Labourers Federation back in the seventies. They introduced um, limited tenure for union officials, and so Jack Mundy, one of the key leaders of the New South Wales Green Bands, he he was. Uh, I can't remember if they deregistered the BLF before he had a chance to step down, but he was scheduled to step down anyway. Um, well, I think I think in the right now, in um, I think it's it's always. It's, um, unions or political groups should always be looking to develop as much leadership as possibly yeah, can. But, they, but it is like a fact that um, some of the, these things, sometimes things like tenure limits would actually weaken something like the trade union movement, which is quite weak right now. And it is quite, because it's quite weak, it is quite dependent on having strong militant leaders that are currently elected um, by, by their membership at this point. Hmm. Um, so that that's just one sort of complicated. They should always, obviously, they should be looking to develop leadership and not rely on leader. But of course, sometimes the material reality of the fact that the union movement is in a weak position, for example, um, does lead to the fact that you might have to do, be dependent on on leaders more than you think you would. Hmm. And I think really, it's it's a it's just another question of democracy. So in Bolivia, there's been a referendum. Do we want to extend the term limit so that Evo can run again? That's mm. been voted down. Fair enough. That's democracy. Mm. Uh, if if people decide in some other place or some other forum, well, we're, that, we're not the, heaps into this. Well, in the, in the Evo Morales case, uh, the, the complicated situation with that is it's sort of not just because basically um, during the referendum, the sort of right kind of plant had a real sort of smear campaign against Evo Morales, mm. which could have negatively impacted on the vote. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's just one sort of factor to consider. All right, um, listeners, um, so you want to find out about how we can get act- you can get active in the next couple of weeks? Get active, get in there. It is, by the way, Friday the 10th of March, and it's 8 a.m. Yep. Henceforth, activist calendar. Woo! Yeah. Okay, so um, the next big event um, will be, there will be, this has just been organised um, now, um, but there is going to be a public forum on Melbourne's sleeping slash camping ban, um, Activities of Local Law 2009, basically a public forum on to have a sort of critical discussion about the, the kind of um, proposals put forward by Robert Doyle and um, its implications for homeless people. Um, basically, this um, this... Uh, this um, will be ta- will be um, this will take place next Friday on the 17th of March from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub, at f- which is at 506 Liver Street in Melbourne. So, if you um, uh, want to find out more about this no homeless ban, or you just want to keep you know the campaign going, try and tell your friends about it, bring as many people as possible to. I think oh, we should make it a big thing. 
Um, on Sunday, March 19th, um, Moreland Social Science Council now has an office in the heart of her ward. Um, so you were inviting people, um, they're inviting people to come along and help launch it. I'll have live acoustic music and meals and bar available. It'll be at 1pm at the Pepper Street place, which is the corner of Ugrate Street from Sydney Road at Coburg, where you enter Ryegate on Ugrate Street, uh, and a few minutes walk from Bell Street. So that's at 1pm and entry is free. Um, on Monday, um, March 20th, um, there'll be live readings of, um, Feminist text, Decolonising Feminism, Building Solidarity, um, but with guest speakers Claire Land and actor slash director Candy Bowers. That is at 5.30pm on Monday the 20th of March at VU in the Community, which is at 138 Nicholson Street in Footscray and hosted by Loving Feminist Literature. On Tuesday, the 21st of March, um, there'll be a public forum kind of eyewitness support, um, fighting for women's rights in Pakistan, and that will feature Sonia Kadir, who is uh, a member of the Awami Workers' Party um, in Pakistan, and she'll be talking about, and she's also involved in um, the feminist movement in Pakistan, and is also a human rights lawyer, or was. I'm not sure if she currently is at this point. That is happening on Tuesday, the 21st of March, um, at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, the Resistance Center at 6.30. Um, at, on the 25th of March, um, there will be a March in March. The March in March rally will be happening from Melbourne. That will be, you know, Australia's United for a Better Government on, that will be at 1pm, um, the 25th of March at the State Library. Um, so we could, hopefully we can make that as big as possible. Um, there'll be a concert for Ezekiel Ox um, on Saturday, April 1st um, at the Evelyn Hotel, 351 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. That's sort of pretty close to this station here, so just have to probably like a 10-minute walk. Um, on Saturday, the 8th of April, um, there'll be a, bit, a day of discussion on fighting for a better world, politics after Trump, building resistance. Um, that will be at the Siteworks, which is free, free Saxon Street in Brunswick. Um, for more info, phone 96398622. Or also happening that same weekend will be the big um, Sunday, April the 9th. There'll be the big rally, Palm Sunday, Walk for Justice for Refugees at 2pm at the State Library. Alright, um, that was pretty relatively quick um, activist calendar. Swift. So we might, um, before we got um, go for our next interview, which is at 8.10am, we'll have um, a few news stories. Alright. Uh, Bangladesh. So here's one. Victory as Bangladesh garment workers released. Calls to stop a government crackdown on trade unionists and garment workers in Bangladesh have paid off as the 35 activists who were arrested in a series of December raids have been released. However, major problems remain in the, country, in the country's garment industry as the government neglects to fully comply with its labour and human rights commitments. The release of imprisoned Bangladeshi trade union activists and garment workers comes after a global campaign led by Industrial Global Union and UNI Global Union called on the government of Bangladesh to stop its crackdown on government workers seeking union rights and a living wage. As a result, a tripartite agreement was reached on February 23 between the Industrial Bangladesh Council, IBC, the Government and the Garment Manufacturers Association providing for the release of the arrested trade unionists. 
It's an important victory for garment workers and trade union activists in Bangladesh, but challenges remain in the country's garment industry as the government continues to ignore its labour and human rights commitments. For example, a recent report concluded that the Bangladeshi government has failed to comply with the Sustainability Compact. The agreement was signed in the wake of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, in which more than 1,100 textile workers were killed on the job when the factory they were working in collapsed. It called for improvements to workplace safety, backed up by worker unions and collective agreements. Some other brief um, news stories from Green Left Weekly. Um, um, based, um, this is just a brief um, news story, but um, bosses call for workplace laws to restrict union entry. Um, the Australian's Mines and Metals Association has locked in launched a video campaign demanding the federal government change workplace laws to restrict union entry into workplaces. Um, the animated video distru- depicts union representatives disrupting work on resource projects. And um, AMMA Chief Executive Steve Conant has also written to key senators and members of the parliament highlighting the absurd, absurd cost, delay, productivity impacts and safety issues associated with the thousands of site entry requests resource employees now receive each year. He said proposed workplace law changes identified last year by 100 leading resources companies were yet to be acted on by the federal parliament. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting how these unions represent such a, a threat to bosses that bosses are always looking for every kind of avenue by which, you know, they can restrict, you know, union power. Mm. It just, you know, motivates me even more, you know, to to support, um, to, to stand with strong, more strong, strongly with the union movement that we need to keep building our unions mm. because clearly, you know, what we do is actually effective. <laughs> yeah, I've worked in... Um I've worked in the minerals sector in the Northern Territory for a while, yeah. and the small town that I was in was pretty much a union-free zone, and some of the sort of safety issues and, and uh, just the kind of hire and fire scenarios were pretty dodgy. So, um, yeah, the idea that unions control the the mineral sector and and have too much control is just ridiculous. Uh, If anything, unions need more influence to ensure the safety of workers and, you know, decent conditions. Um, We have Chris Jenkins on the line here. Um, He is currently running as a candidate for Socialist Alliance in the WA state elections. Um, Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Morning, morning. Hi, I guess... um, before we, you know, talk about, you know, what your what the platform you're standing on in WA state election, what are the kind of the the kind of big sort of political issues that are sort of um, um, the kind of the, the big political issues that are, are sort of at stake here in the WA state election? Mm. Well, the Liberal Party has been in power for the last eight years, and in that time, we've had the so-called mining boom in Western Australia. And yet most of the wealth that has been created by that has gone directly into the hands of the big mining companies and the banks. The point now that the government is claiming poor and is claiming that it has no choice but to seek to privatise community assets like Western Power, the Fremantle Port, and go ahead with major infrastructure projects that have no major social utility but rather seek to make more money for the the companies that were previously making that much money from the mining industry. Yes. So there's a big question of um, 
of public finance, of public good. And, and the question that's really coming to the forefront at the minute is, in whose interest is the economy run and used? Is it in the interest of big business or is it in the interest of the community? I guess um, the, one of the other things with the WA state election is um, is basically the increased support for One Nation. Um, what can what is um, what is happening there, and you know, what do you have any thoughts on what is contributing to that rise? Yeah. Well, it seems to, um, to have risen and fallen in the last few weeks. Uh, the background for that is obviously the fact that One Nation has benefited from decades of racist policies by the major parties, Labor and Liberal, um, and they've sought to identify themselves as an anti-establishment party, which is ridiculous when you consider that uh, on the national level, One Nation has voted with the Liberals at every point. Mm. And in WA, it's been hilarious to see them uh, seek to have a, policy, uh, sorry, a preference swap with the Liberals. So on the state level, they've sought to identify or distance themselves from the Liberals in policy in terms of opposing the Perth Freight Link, opposing the privatisation of the Ford, etc., but then doing a preference swap with the Liberals, which would then see the Liberals return to power. And I think um, the last few weeks, some people that were potentially considering One Nation have turned back around because they've seen the hypocrisy at play. Hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. I just want to ask just a quick little thing on that. So they've been on on record to say that they oppose the Freight A-Link mm. and what has been their reasoning for it? Um, it's sort of hard to tell, to be honest, because um, you have Pauline Hanson coming out um, with her opposition to it and her argument is um, that it's, it's, it's not what the community wants and therefore it shouldn't be going ahead. Mm. But then on the local level, you have One Nation candidates that say, uh, no, they support it. The, the One Nation candidate for one for a free apple at a recent neither candidate forum said, I drive, I like cars, I like Perth Freight Link. <laughs> 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 and so it does seem that it, the conversation you'll have with one One Nation person, if you are so unfortunate to have a conversation with one, um, is very different to the conversation we'll have with another. Um, Zane, you have a question? Yeah, Chris, you were talking about the... Um the mining boom. So over the wealth's been vacuumed out to its rightful owners, um, namely the heads of big uh, mining companies, jointly listed in London. Um, and then the state government saying, oh, we don't have money for stuff. And one of those, um, one of the things that the Western Australian government has claimed they can't afford anymore is keeping the lights on and keeping the water connected in remote Aboriginal communities. Uh, has that mm. been something that's kind of come up for discussion as part of this um, election campaign? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, the the attacks that the Liberal government is having on Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal people is intense. Hmm. Um, and then the, the threat to close up the 150 Aboriginal communities continues. Um, and even, you know, in urban areas, um, the, the rights of Aboriginal people to services like housing, welfare and social services, etc., are, are forever under attack, um, to the point where the construction of, or the proposed construction of new prisons is being proposed as coming out of funding for Aboriginal advancement. 
you know, so I mean, it's, it is it is vile. Um, our candidate for Willoughby, Karina Abraham, is a Nunga custodian, and she's really hammering away at a lot of these different um, issues that directly affect the Aboriginal community, direct, you know, in a very specific way, um, because there's so much at stake. Like, one of the main things that has been recent is the uh, proposed uh, native title deal between the government and the South West Land and Sea Council, which sought to buy native title um, so that the government wouldn't have to acknowledge or you know, consult with any custodians for any actions that they wanted to go ahead with. And this has been hand-in-glove with um, the deregistration of so many sacred sites across the state. I understand it's in the hundreds of sacred sites that, that have been deregistered under this Barnett government. Hmm. So you've got the oldest continuous human culture on earth and this government's running around roughshod, making squillions of dollars off Aboriginal land and then saying they don't have money for basic services that don't cost that much and and just trashing sacred sites. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about this, like, I mean, native title is such a flimsy claim to the land anyway. Mm. But a part of it is that if you break your continual uh, association with the land because in your community there are no services or there are no job opportunities and you move to an urban centre, if enough people do that, then the government can claim that that continual link has been broken and therefore native title is lost. Mm. And it's another sort of um, uh, tool used by the the mining industry and the the big pastoral industry to move Aboriginal people away from their land to starve the most resources on their own community. Hmm. Um, I guess now um, we've sort of covered a number of the issues in the campaign. What is the? Can you tell us about the election platform that um, Socialist Alliance in WA is running on for this um, state election? Sure. Um, the main sort of policy thrust that we're looking to make in this election is about defending community assets. Um, for the common good. Mm. So opposing the privatisation of Western Power and Fremantle Port and also taking a somewhat unique perspective on the Perth Freight Link, which people would know is a major road-building project. Um, Many other parties and groups have focused on the exact route of that road or certain components to it, whereas our message is that for, you know, for the chance of a sustainable climate around the world into the future, such projects as this cannot go ahead. They're massively carbon intensive, and it wouldn't matter if they were going through an industrial wasteland. Mm-hmm. Social science would oppose it and advocate for freight on rail and public transport mm-hmm. solutions to provide alternatives to this. Yeah. I, um, well, the interesting thing about that, um, one thing I've noticed with these some of these campaigns is sometimes you have this sort of consciousness of not in my backyard, mm-hmm. where um, people don't oppose things for the principled kind of political reasons that you're putting forward there, um, but on the basis of, yeah, we don't want this in my backyard, so we're happy for, you know, this the Freight A to be redirected somewhere else. I mean, that reminds me of the whole Dakota Pipeline case because basically the Dakota Pipeline was actually originally going to be routed through um, white land, well, place a place where white people live, basically, and then all the people kind of like were so opposed to it that they then decided to reroute it through... Um, Native American land, but really th- those issue. If you do, if you oppose 
something like the Dakota Pipeline on the basis of not my backyard. It's a very limiting political perspective. It just means it just gets rerouted to someone else and negatively impacts on another group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the phrase, um, think, like, act locally, think globally, I think really covers that, you know, like, um, we are very conscious and self-reliant in WA that when we are campaigning against this road, we are thinking of the global consequences of that. Mm. Um, and particularly where there are such viable solutions to it as well. You know, like, um, so much public money, as we talked about earlier, at a time of, you know, so-called, it's a, it's a manufactured debt crisis. Mm. is being used for no public good, and in doing so is destroying sacred sites, destroying an ecologically diverse place, but is more importantly pumping the air for the carbon, you know? Like, uh, and it's that big picture that we always seek to return to because it's you know, that which gives the full gravity of the situation. Mm. Well, I think um, one, of the, one of the things, um, just one thing I would like to ask about the Freight A Road, I mean... You um, said before that um, the government is um, basically going on this sort of austerity drive. You know, we need to privatise the ports, we need to privatise um, Western power, but isn't this whole freight road project actually dependent on public money? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's a joint venture between state and federal government, Mm. and it's now moving into the billions of dollars, you know, um, but the other thing is the government has no real clear plan how they would finish this project. They started part of it, but the next proposal is for a tunnel under two suburbs um, with, you know, diesel particulates just gushing out at both ends. And even if that went ahead, the, t- um, the tunnel would en- come out on the opposite side of a river to the port itself. Um, so <laughs> they really have no idea what they're doing. And the privatisation of the port is the thought of making it into sort of high-end um, accommodation. But the cost of re- rehabilitating what has been an industrial site for decades would be a cost that hasn't been talked about yet. Um, and all this at the time when, you know, the the capacity of the port isn't expected to be met, you know, for decades um, and is returning revenue to the state. You know, so it's it's got nothing to do with it being a rational plan. It's uh, what makes money for the, you know, the financial backers of the Liberal Party. Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't do it. They did that in Melbourne. They uh, turned Docklands into um, apartment fill, and it's just this kind of weird Lego land where there's not much organic activity happening on the ground and heaps of empty apartments that investors have just bought and just leave sitting there empty. So it's Mm. Yeah, kind of when you turn Docklands or, or an old port into monoculture housing development, it's uh, it's easy to get it wrong. Um, do you have any questions, Zane? Uh, yeah, just what's what's a vision for a um, like after the revolution? What's Western Australia going to look like? Like, give us a vision for a radically different socialist Western Australia. Sure. Well, I'm not sure how unique it would be to WA, but obviously we envision a society in which um, our cities are decentralised so that people are not having to like, you know, travel great distances between house and work and leisure places, um, that 
you know, comprehensive public transport allows people to get between places in a way that doesn't rely on private car use or diesel particulate. Um, WA would have its energy needs provided by renewable energy. Uh, it's food provided by, you know, majority urban permaculture organic farming, where people know the source of their food and respect it and are involved in its cultivation. Um, Aboriginal communities are, are thriving, strong, confident Aboriginal people, strong, confident Aboriginal communities fighting for their land and keeping the culture alive and teaching us wadulas a whole heap. Um, mm. And, yeah, just living in a, in a community where, you know, the resources that exist are directed towards the prosperity of everybody in a safe environment and we actually, you know, fulfill the potential that we all have, you know. It's... Um, uh, whenever I talk about that, I always get that, you know, sort of starry-eyed about it. But it's true. I mean, there's no reason why such a reality can open up in front of us if we do the opening. Hmm. Here, here. Well, especially in um, the context of Australia being such a rich country. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Um, and um, one of the, one, I guess, one of the things is um, with the whole mining boom in WA is there's, ne- um, you know, that all that wealth or that has not gone to the people because, you know, we've never, because the government has refused to tax, um, put a, a tax on mining and um, none of the mining companies pay any reasonable level of tax. Yeah. And that's one of the funny things as well, actually, that um, you have a situation where Breeding Girls, who's the state head of the National Party, in seeking to sort of differentiate himself from the Liberals ahead of the election, um, called for a $5 a ton uh, royalty increase on the mining uh, sector. And you can just imagine the vitriol that came out from the Liberals and the mining sector themselves. Um, but Social Science would support that, you know, as an um, intermediate sort of measure from, on a national level, bringing the mines into public ownership, is taxing to the hill. You know, and use that money towards solving this so-called budget crisis and ensuring that, you know, healthcare services, community services, public housing is prioritised. Hmm. Um, so funnily enough, we are able to use a sort of a desperate attempt by a right-wing party to differentiate themselves to then push a progressive agenda. Hmm. Word. Word. All right. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks for um, for um, letting us call you in for there. Um, especially since it's pretty early in the morning for you, I imagine. Um, it's like probably six twenty-five a.m. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh no, five twenty-five. Oh, five twenty-five. Oh, oh, that's harsh. I thought, it was, I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought you were two hours behind, not three hours. <laughs> and actually, I need to. Duck, I need to head off to work in about five minutes. Oh yeah. So, so um, it was all perfect timing. All right. Yeah. Thank you very right. much. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, so we're getting close to the end of the program, so we do have a bit of time for uh, a couple of news stories. Um, I guess, um, just let me find one. Oh, yes, there's one. I just got, want to kind of end it on this kind of note, especially since this is quite a relevant campaign, and we spoke about it last week, but I think this article is actually slightly different. Um, and basically about the that the majority back pill testing amid overdoses. Um, this is an article by Stuart Monkton in the latest copy of Green Left Weekly. Um, days after 21 people were hospitalised for drug overdoses at um, Melbourne's Electrics Parade Music Festival in just over a month after three people were killed in Melbourne by a toxic batch of SSA. Um, a February, you know, um, a poll in February on February the 21st found most Australians support pill testing. 
to allow consumers to know what is in the drugs they buy. The recent spate of overdoses led to a new course to implement trials of drug checking services or pill testing at music festivals and nightclub precincts. Sydney drug lawyers, lawyers reported on February 24th. Um, a February 21st, uh, the, the central media poll found with 57% Australians supporting raw pill service, testing services, only 13% of those polled opposed the idea. Um, despite you know this popular support, um, the Victorian Health Minister Martin Forley said the state government had no plans to introduce drug or pill testing. The Guardian said on February 20th that harm reduction advocates said the overdoses could have been prevented if consumers had access to crucial information about the concentration and chemical makeup of the drug they plan to take. Um, Dr. Alex Waddock, um, president of the Australian Law Reform Foundation, told the Guardian that the period of literacy approach to reducing harm from lindic drugs had not worked. Um, and so, yeah, basically, you know, this is, this is a very sort of ongoing campaign of, um, drug, around drug legislation. There's a push, you know, for pill testing and so on, but we're getting, um, safe pill testing and safe injecting rooms. Um, and there's a petition I think you can sign around if you search, okay. But we're running low on time for, so stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. And thank you listeners and thank you guests for being on our program. Yes. See you next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 800 634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.